This is the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. David Rocco joins us. How you doing, David? Very good, Bob. Nice to be here. Well, it's good to have you on the program. David Rocco and professional writer Don Keith are the authors of The Indestructible Man, the true story of World War II hero Captain Dixie. His name was Dixie Kiefer. Uh, tell us about Dixie Kiefer. Where, where was he from? He was born in Blackfoot, Idaho in uh, 1896. His family moved shortly after that, <clears throat> excuse me, to uh, Lincoln, Nebraska, where he graduated high school. And at that point, he entered the Naval Academy and was supposed to graduate in the class of 1919, but because of the ongoing war, World War One, they accelerated the class of 1918, and they shipped him off to France. Really? So what did he do in World War One? Uh, he was an officer, of course, and he bounced around to the different ships that uh, they were constantly being uh, transferred to one ship or another. Um, he was off of um, the coast of France when he was over there. He was on the Corona, the Favorite, the Chesapeake. And then, obviously, at the end of the war, then he came back to uh, the United States on the uh, Pennsylvania. Did he stay in the Navy after the war? Oh, he, he made a career out of it until the day he died. When he really? um, was killed in 1945, of all days, November 11, 1945, um, he had been in the, in the Navy just about 30 years between uh, yeah. the Academy and serving through both World War One and World War Two. And you note that he was the first man to fly an airplane off a ship at night? Yeah, he did that in 1924 at night off the coast of San Diego. Uh, back in those days, they were just starting to develop the aircraft carriers. So the only way to uh, get planes off ships, they'd be catapulted off. And um, that, was, that was the easy part. The hard part was to get the planes back on those ships. So what they had to do was they put like uh, some sort of uh, floating dock behind the ship. And once uh, the ships had, they were marine boats, uh, marine planes. So when they would land back in the water, they would have to speed up to catch up to the uh, dock, full speed, and then shut the engines off as he got onto the float before they would hit the ship. So that was in skill. Yeah. And when World War II uh, takes place, uh, he's a uh, seasoned officer, I would say, and he is probably best known uh, for his efforts on board two aircraft carriers, the first being the USS Yorktown. Uh, what, what happened to him there? Uh, I became the executive officer of the USS Yorktown um, shortly after uh, the bombing of Pearl Harbor. He actually was on the USS Wright on his way back from uh, Midway to Pearl Harbor. And it's amazing how they just missed paths with the uh, Japanese uh, assault. Because by the time they got back to Pearl Harbor, they just missed it by hours. Um, he was transferred at, shortly after that to the Yorktown, as you mentioned. And uh, it wasn't long after that, in 1942. First, they were in the Battle of Coral Sea, where they got hit by a kamikaze uh, plane. And they, were on a, they worked their way back to <clears throat> excuse me, um, Pearl Harbor again to get repaired. And the original estimates were to have the uh, Yorktown repaired within six months. Higher command said uh, they weren't going to hear that. It would be out of here in 30 days, whether it's finished or not. And sure enough, in 30 days, 
it was sending the Yorktown back out towards Midway uh, with re- repair crews on board trying to make up the finishing touches. And it wasn't as capable as it should have been because then during the Battle of Midway, uh, they were hit again with kamikaze uh, planes, and uh, at that point, they had abandoned ship. This was probably May of 42, uh, or June of 42, and um, they were standing on nearby rescue ships when the captain of the uh, Yorktown said to Dixie, grab 100 guys, go back over, seems not to be sick. So when they got over there, lo and behold, a Japanese submarine fired a torpedo to pretty much put the finishing torch, touches off these uh, Yorktown. Sadly, more men died that should have died. Um, Dixie was um, lowering one of the uh, injured men in the uh, rescue basket down the side of the ship, but it was it slipped in the hand. The rope slipped in his hands, burnt his hands to a crisp. The guy fell down, so he tried to lower himself down to get to the guy. He could no longer hold his own weight because of the injuries to his hands, he fell up, hit the side of the armor belt, and fractured his uh, compound fracture of his foot and his ankle. Now, despite the injuries to his hand and to his leg and foot, he swam over, to got to the guy in the basket, brought him over to uh, a life raft with two other injured people, and tried to push him over to a waiting boat before he finally passed out. They grabbed him, pulled him in. So uh, for that, those efforts, he received um, the... Uh, um, the Navy Cross, I believe. Um, mm-hmm. So, and that was the beginning of his relationship with uh, James Forrester, which is uh, comes back into play a couple of years later. Yeah, it was the Navy Cross. Okay, so, uh, and James um, Forrester was Secretary of the Navy. Yes, um, the remarkable thing about my research during my four years—I mean, it wasn't my goal to write a book about this. It was just, you know, I was just fascinated by. Um, how this all came into play. My, my original connection was I worked on this project called Walkway Over the Hudson. Up in, well, in my case, it's up in Poughkeepsie, New York. I had just retired from a job with New York City as a carpenter. I was injured on the job. And, you know, it was this crazy idea to take this old railroad abandoned bridge that, you know, sat there for 40 years and turn it into a multi-use walkway. Long story short, we convinced some people with the big money, we got involved, and we had the grand opening in 2009. Then I got involved in the restoration of a historic fire tower on top of Mount Beacon. Same thing, we got the project done a couple of years later. So shortly after the celebration of the fire tower, which was um, attended by 75 people on top of Mount Beacon on a beautiful day, including uh, legendary uh, activist Pete Seeger, who sang Amazing Grace, uh, which is a beautiful thing. Somebody had mentioned to me about plane crash in Mount Beacon. Since I had nothing else going on, I did some research. And lo and behold, I find out that there was uh, not just one plane crash, but two. Uh, mm. One on November of 1945, which is the one Dixie Kiefer passed away in, and one 10 years earlier in 1935, where two Navy reservists were killed, pretty much about the same area of Mount Beacon, maybe a quarter mile away. That plane happened to crash on the Putnam County side of Mount Beacon. So that's why we, a uh, group of us, decided to call the organization Friends of the Mount Beacon 8. You're trying to create, or have you done this already? You're trying to create a, a memorial at the, uh, near the site of these plane crashes? Um, the memorial would be because that location of the plane crash in 45 is in the town of Fishkill, not the city of Beacon. 
town of Fishkill already has a Veterans Memorial Park, so we worked together a couple of years ago to have a beautiful ceremony on the uh, 70th anniversary, which was uh, November 2015. So we want to put a monument there, but we already bought a historic market that you see along the side of the roads where it explains whatever event or location that you just passed by. We we're going to plant that up at the site of the 1945 crash. Um, we also plan to buy one for the 35 crash because we weren't sure where it was. But back in late November, somebody uh, helped me and we found it. As a matter of fact, we found pieces of that plane as well because there are large pieces of the 1945 crash still there as we speak. David Rocco joins us. He uh, is in the uh, Hudson Valley of uh, New York State, very active in community affairs. And we're talking with him about a book that he is co-author of called The Indestructible Man, the true story of World War II hero Captain Dixie, Dixie Kiefer. We'll have more with David Rocco after a few words about the Historian's podcast. We hope you will see your way clear to donating to the Historian's uh, podcast campaign this year. It uh, keeps us going, and we uh, welcome your donations online. You can go to our GoFundMe page, gofundme.com forward slash historians2018, or you can send a check made out to me, Bob Cudmore, and send to Bob Cudmore, 125 Horstman Drive in Scotia, New York. And thank you very much. We're hearing the story of uh, Dixie Kiefer, a naval hero. Uh, he's the subject of a book co-authored by our guest, uh, David Rocco. Let me go back to uh, Dixie Kiefer's life as you were telling it. We've heard about his service in World War One and his uh, being wounded uh, in the sinking of the USS Yorktown in 1942 at the Battle of Midway. He later saw service on the uh, USS, uh, uh, another, uh, the USS Ticonderoga, of course, named for a famous um, battle site uh, in, uh, in New York State. What happened to him on the Ticonderoga? Just so your listeners understand, the aircraft carriers back in the day were named after American battles, Bunker Hill, the Intrepid, such as, like you said, Ticonderoga. Um, after he was injured from uh, the, uh, the attack on the USS Yorktown, he bounced around to um, different positions on land as an instructor. He went back to Annapolis as the head of the aviation department down to uh, Pensacola, Florida, where the flight school is. Uh, he, since he had a master's degree in aviation engineering, um, he also uh, would teach the classes as well, besides being an instructor. Uh, he got his degree both from Annapolis and MIT. So a few years after that, um, he became the first commanding officer of the USS Ticonderoga, which was... Uh, May of 1944. Mm -hmm. uh, he fed out the uh, USS Ticonderoga down in Virginia, and they worked their way out to uh, the Pacific and uh, Pearl Harbor. And um, January of 1945, January 21st to be precise, um, within one hour, the Ticonderoga was hit by two kamikaze planes. Uh, he wasn't that injured on the first attack. See, Dixie 
um, method was a little bit different than uh, other commanding officers. He really, really liked to roll up his sleeves. He really liked to get down with the guys. He would make people do things that he wouldn't do. Uh, he would really be one of the guys. He had their respect. They didn't lose respect because of that. But And I tell you, I met some of the people that served underneath him. Every time we talked about him, tears would come down their face. I mean, I've never seen anybody have so much respect. And But the other officers that hired chain of command were not exactly thrilled with the way he did things. So the one thing that might have cost him the Congressional Medal of Honor was during those attacks, he liked to stay outside on the bridge on the aircraft carrier to oversee all the operations. That's when he got hurt on the second kamikaze attack, whereas he was hit with well over 65 pieces of shrapnel and a broken arm. But yet, despite those two injuries, severe injuries, he stayed on the bridge directing rescue operations and the fire controls for 12 hours until he finally gave in and came down to make sure all the men were taken care of before him and all the fires were under control. Hmm. That kind of reminds me of a story from the American Revolution with General Nicholas Herkimer, who at the Battle of Oriskany was, was wounded early on, but he kind of uh, ordered the battle from a, you know, he was propped up against a tree, and uh, it, it was the, the outcome of the battle was you know a little hard to judge, but it certainly ended um, more favorably to the Patriot cause than it would have if he hadn't done that. Fortunately, Herkimer died uh, from his injuries sometime after uh, that. Uh, Dixie Kiefer did not die from these injuries, correct? No, he did not. No, he did not. Um, after extensive, um, he was taken off the ship the next day to the uh, medical ship called the Samaritan. Uh, he was brought to Pearl Harbor for uh, the initial uh, care, and then he was brought back to the mainland for the follow-up treatment. Um, then basically he was on leave, and they were going to give him the commands of uh, Quonset Point Naval Air Station in Rhode Island. But before he even got anywhere near there, he was brought up to Rockefeller Center uh, for uh, an award ceremony, coming back to Jan Sparrowstall again. Um, and Sparrowstall was reading off Dixie Keeper's, you know, achievements with these uh, exploits, is a better word, between the Yorktown and between the Ticonderoga. And he turned around and said, you're the indestructible man. Mm. Now, the amazing thing was, who would know... That six months later, seven months later, Dixie Keeper would get killed at Janice Farrell hometown of Beacon, New York. Yeah, isn't that something? And why was uh, Dixie Keeper on an airplane even? And uh, he wasn't piloting the plane, was he? I mean, he maybe wasn't a Well, I guess he was a pilot at some point. Yeah, he received these wings in 1923. Um, he, you know, he's considered a lifelong aviator. No, he was the commanding officer of Quonset Point, Rhode Island. And the other thing is, we're sidetracked for a quick second, is that Mount Beacon received its name from the Beacon Fires that the Patriots lit during the Revolutionary War. So Washington, who was directly across the Hudson River, was in Newburgh at the headquarters, would see if the British were coming up the river or down the river from uh, whatever Kingston or from New York City. Quonset Point, Rhode Island, is very well known for two reasons. One, it was the first naval base in the Revolutionary War. And secondly, it's where Quonset Huts were created. Hmm. How about that? So... Um, Dixie Kiefer's on board this airplane taking, where were they going? 
Uh, they were going down to uh, Curtis Wright Airport, which is in Caldwell, New Jersey, just for an overnight on Saturday, uh, November 10th. Uh, the first uh, line of business was go to a football game at the old Yankee Stadium to see Army versus Notre Dame. Because back in the day, Army was number one, uh, Notre Dame was two, Navy three, and Alabama four. And after the game, they must have went out for the night, and then they met the next morning, uh, Sunday, November 11th. Uh, the flight took off around 11.40, 11.45, and within 15, 20 minutes, they followed north the Hudson River, and it was a rainy, foggy day, and they uh, hit Mount Beacon around uh, 1,100 feet. Now, the thing I just, like I kept saying, I kept discovering all these different things, I like so-called connecting the dots. It occurred to Don and I that they left during the 11th hour on the 11th day of the 11th month, and they were killed 1,100 feet up. Hmm. That's something. And um, can you tell us about the other plane crash, the one that had happened, uh, was it 10 years earlier on Mount Beacon? Yes, yes. Um, that was uh, two reservists. You know, obviously there was no war going on, so yeah, they still had to serve their time. Um, uh, the pilot's name was Lincoln Denton. He was 27 years old. Their base was uh, Floyd Bennett Field in uh, Brooklyn. Uh, their flight took them up to Detroit, to Albany, and back to uh, Floyd Bennett. And on their way back, he actually passed the city of Beacon and uh, the town of Fishkill. For whatever reason, uh, 15 miles south, 10 miles south, over the city of Peekskill, another famous revolutionary city on the Hudson River, made a turn and headed back north and developed uh, engine trouble and crashed up on what today is now known as Fishkill Ridge. Uh, mm -hmm. He was a graduate of Harvard. He's uh, Since he was uh, what they call a Navy hell diver uh, biplane, there was just two people on board, himself and his passenger. Uh, Clinton Hart was an aviation mate. And Clinton had worked uh, for the New York Stock Exchange at the time of his death, which was 28. Clinton was the only one. He was married, but uh, uh, the pilot, Lincoln, wasn't. But hmm. back up, the pilot on the 1945 crash, Lloyd Heinsohn, was only 27. But Lloyd was a Navy ace. He shot down six Japanese airplanes during the battles in uh, the South Pacific, mostly when he was on the Bunker Hill. And he did do some flights on the uh, Intrepid. Floyd was shot himself out of the air, but he survived, obviously, only to crash on a, you know, a routine flight you know, in 1945. And that's um, something. What an, uh, a sad irony that was. And also, the, another connection, or I guess you said that, that this, uh, this, um, these plane crashes took place in the town that James Forrestal was born in or lived in. Was that the... No, I mean, the, the 45 crash, yes. Um, well, actually, when Florida was born, there was two cities side-by-side side called Fishkill Landing and Matawan. But in 1913, they combined both of them and created the city of Beacon. But yes. where the crash took place in 1945, it was on the Putnam County side because Fishkill and Beacon are in Dutchess County. So on the Putnam County side of that same ridge, is where the 35 crash uh, occurred, and mm -hmm. that's the town of Phillipstown, Putnam County. We're talking about Dixie Kiefer primarily with David Rocco, who, along with Don Keith, are authors of 
uh, the book, The Indestructible Man, the true story of World War II hero, Captain Dixie. Uh, did he have a family, uh, you know, Dixie Kiefer? Dixie was a lifelong bachelor. He was the sole caretaker for his mother and his sister, Honey. Um, so the mother passed away in uh, 1949 because wherever Dixie went, the mother and the sister was, you know, dragged along. And they were well cared for, especially came in handy during the 30s, during the uh, Depression. Um, and when the mother passed away, and obviously Dixie uh, passed away in 45, the sister moved down to the Long Island area. And this is another awesome story that developed uh, about two years ago. I received an email from a lawyer out of New York City saying that I discovered what you men have been doing regarding honoring the memories of Dixie Keeper and his fallen comrades. I have Dixie Keeper's medals. I would like to present them to you as uh, a token of what you've been doing, and I feel better that's in your hands as opposed to being in my sock drawer. So I was blown away by this. So I wrote back to him. I said, first of all, how do you have them? He says, well, my father was friends with Dixie Keeper's sister. When she passed away, she left them to him unknowingly. Then five years later, he passed away, and I still have them 20-something years later. He was actually on his way down to Patriots Point, South Carolina, because that's where the second USS Yorktown is docked. That I believe that CV, all aircraft carriers at that time had the label uh, designation C as in Charlie, V as in Victor, and that was uh, the 10. Uh, the Intrepid mm-hmm. C-11, uh, Ticonderoga uh, is 14, and the original Yorktown is 4. So... There's this museum on there, obviously, Patience Point, South Carolina, and that second USS Yorktown. And again, the ironic thing is, this coincidence, the um, Congressional Medal of Honor Hall of Fame is on that Yorktown, which I'm trying to get, and Don and I are trying to get Dixie the Congressional Medal of Honor, because considering all these things that he did, um, he received just about every other medal that they, mm-hmm. they manufactured. I mean, two Purple Hearts. Uh, the Navy Cross, the Distinguished Service Medal, um, it's just, and all the other campaign medals that all those men received when uh, the American campaign, when they received her on the end of World War II. Uh, also, did he not take part in creation of a movie that, uh, during World War II? I think it was between his woundings, if you will. Yes, I'm glad you reminded me that. After um, his injuries and the recovery from the Yorktown, the Navy was making a documentary, and it was called The Fighting Lady. Now, Dixie became the second captain on this, you know, supposing uh, um, aircraft carrier, which at that time was going to be called the Bon Home Richard, again after um, the battle. Um, and that documentary, believe it or not, received the Academy Award for Best Documentary. They... Once the movie was over, they switched the names to the second USS Yorktown. So there's all these continuous connections, and it's just amazing how this all evolved, and that's why I just kept getting deeper and deeper. And I just have to give thanks to uh, U.S. Senator Joe Brand and her staff for helping me uh, get the personnel records of all eight men, uh, the personnel records department out in St. Louis, uh, this way between local historians um, newspapers, uh, of course, the internet. I was able to accumulate uh, 1,500, 2,000 pages of information and, and to get a full sense of who these men were, 
where they came from, their height, the color of their eyes, even their fingerprints are on some of these um, documents. So it, it just became really, really um, important to me that the story was told. And I didn't mm-hmm. want to write it myself because I'm not a professional writer. I'm sure I could have put something together. I'm smart enough to do something like that. But when I came across two books and a local BJ's uh, just about a year ago, I saw the two books. Their names were called um, Undersea Warrior and The Ship That Wouldn't Die, both written by this author by the name of Don Keith. So I didn't know which book to read, so I went to his office notes to read his background. Don had created a website called One Million Untold Stories to try and preserve the stories of all the veterans of all the wars we've been in because it said once they die, the stories go with them. So let's try and preserve history. Everybody has their own story to tell, so that was his way of doing that. And by the way, if you have a story that's never been written about before, contact me. We'll discuss a possible project. So I really? Him, and you and, and so you contacted him, right, and or send him information on this story? Yeah, I didn't give him the specifics of everything because I was just trying to protect my concept. And um, three hours later, he wrote back. <laughs> I couldn't believe it, you know. Uh, and he said, I like what I hear, but I need more. He says, um, you're afraid me stealing your idea? Don't worry about it because, you know, I have uh, a um, reputation to maintain. I didn't know much about Don at that point, but Don written over 30 books. As a matter of fact, one of his books was recently turned into a movie. Was, um, the book he wrote was called Firing Point, and it was changed to Hunter Killer. Now, it was supposed to come out back in the fall, but Lucky Don and Lucky, uh, the team that put the movie together, because the two main stars are Gerard Butler and Gary Oldman. Now, Gary Oldman's getting all these awards now for the Churchill movie. So mm-hmm. when this movie comes out over the summer, you, you can be sure that they're going to milk it for all it's worth. It's a award-winning you know, actor, Gary Oldman, and um, Hunter Killer, which is great for us. Don wants to turn our book into a movie. Sounds like it would make a good one. And I, I must say, we're, we're uh, getting close to the end of the program. Uh, the book is called Indestructible Man, or The Indestructible Man, the true story of World War II hero Captain Dixie. It's about uh, Dixie Kiefer. I would, uh, trying to come up with a name for you, David Rocco, I think it would be The Tireless Man. I mean, you work on so many of these uh, projects in, in your retirement. And, uh, you know, you we mentioned you mentioned in passing the walkway across the Hudson. Holy cow, that's a that's a major thing. I mean, I just retired from New York City Housing Authority and I need to do something. I was still a young guy. So I said, um, this is an amazing thing because I love the new tr- uh, concept called rail trail concept to take the old right ways from the railroad lines and turn into multi-use pathways. Uh, I love uh, the bridges. Obviously, I love bridges. Uh, I'm a ph- 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 photographer. I've been following the Tapsy Bridge project now for five years. Uh, probably ten to 15,000 photographs of that project from every angle, including 10 and 12 helicopter flights. But with the Poughkeepsie Railroad Bridge and its history that goes back and crisscrosses with the building of the Brooklyn Bridge because two guys were classmates in the very first class in the RPI, uh, um, uh, Washington Roblin and um, the uh, McDonald from the Poughkeepsie Railroad Bridge Project. And uh, it was just amazing that when David McCullough wrote that book, The Great Bridge, 
He never once mentioned the Poughkeepsie Railroad Bridge. Because I'm awful sorry, David. We're, we're uh, running uh, short of time. I was just going to throw this out to you at the end. Uh, you know, the walkway bridge across the Hudson is, is unique and wonderful. I've never been on that. Uh, but up here in my country, uh, my hometown of Amsterdam, they just built a pedestrian bridge over the Mohawk River. And, and you're using the idea of the, the bridge down there, which, of course, was an actual existing bridge. But we're really out of time. Uh, David Rocco, Don Keith, authors of The Indestructible Man, the true story of World War II hero Captain Dixie. That's Dixie Kiefer. This has been the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore.